Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Delegates from around the world are meeting in Lima, Peru this week and next for the latest iteration of international climate change talks. These climate change talks in Peru are tremendously important, but they are not getting a tremendous amount of attention in the media. So I thought I would call up Elliot Derringer of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions who could walk me and us collectively through the big issues on the table and explain the significance of these talks in Peru. Elliot, you may recall, is a recurring guest. I spoke to him on the eve of the big climate summit hosted by Ban Ki-moon at the United Nations in September. Uh, And in the interview you're about to hear, he helps put these Lima talks in context. He discusses some of the sticking points, the opportunities for progress, and how we might measure success from this conference. So here it is, my conversation with Elliot Derringer of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Lima is the uh, one-year mark from the deadline for reaching a new global climate agreement. And uh, getting to that agreement next year in Paris is critical for getting nations all pulling together toward the goal of really trying to reduce the risks of climate change. Uh, There's a real opportunity to come up with a solid deal next year in Paris uh, and hopefully we can set the stage well in Lima so that the coming year of negotiations will be as productive as possible. Uh, So what's happening in Lima uh, to push the needle towards an agreement in Paris? What issues are on the table this week and and next in Lima? Well, there there are really two major sets of issues. One are more immediate issues, uh, how countries will be coming forward over the coming year with their intended nationally determined contributions to the Paris Agreement. Uh, We had a recent announcement from the U.S. and China uh, previewing their intended contributions. Uh, We heard earlier from the European Union as well. Starting early next year, countries will formally submit those intended contributions to the U.N., So there are some decisions that need to be made in Lima on exactly how those are supposed to be framed and submitted, and then what type of process will take place over the course of the coming year to give parties an opportunity to really take a close look at what countries are proposing. Can you so take a, what, can, can you actually uh, just give some examples of what is the, uh, the concept, the idea behind the intended nationally determined contributions? I know this is a key linchpin in whatever agreement is going to be reached, but you know, how should we understand uh, these? I think the, the term of art is the INDCs. 
That's right. Yeah. So we've uh, introduced a new acronym. We'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll see if it's a permanent one or short-lived. Uh, but yes, this is actually a uh, a new construct and a key uh, a key element of what's likely to emerge in the final agreement in Paris. Uh, essentially, uh, countries decided a year ago to invite these intended nationally determined contributions. And the fact that they are characterized as nationally determined indicates that countries will have a high degree of latitude in determining for themselves both the nature of their contributions and the level of effort they're going to be putting forward. Can you give some examples of what these contributions might look like? Sure. Well, I mean, we have some very clear examples on the table now from uh, the U.S., China, and EU. In China's case, uh, what was announced was a peaking of greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 or earlier. Now, whether they're, whether the, the formal contribution that they submit next year takes exactly that form, we'll have to see, but that's what they've put out at this stage. The United States, on the other hand, has uh, proposed a 26 to 28 percent reduction in its greenhouse gas emissions below 2005 levels by 2025. Uh, the EU has set for itself a 40 percent reduction from 1990 levels by 2030. So you, you get a sense from those three of the kind of variety of contributions you'll see. In all three cases, these are economy-wide targets. Uh, but in the case of China, it's a peaking target. In the, in the case of both the United States and the EU, they are percentage reductions from a base year, but they've chosen different base years, 2005 versus 1990. They've also chosen different end years. The U.S. target is for 2025. The EU target is for 2030. So I, I think looking across these, you get a sense of the variety of contributions we're likely to see coming forward from other countries. And part of the uh, part of the rationale for providing that flexibility to countries to frame their contributions uh, as they decide uh, is to encourage broader participation. Uh, this allows countries to come forward with contributions that fit their, uh, their policy systems uh, as well as their state of political development domestically. Um, so, so it's not like the UN is imposing these standards, these targets on countries. The countries are coming up with it themselves individually. Presumably, I guess that means that they're more implementable, right? That if countries are agreeing to do these things, um, you know, it means that they can actually do them as opposed to that, sort of another country telling other one country telling another country what to do. These are that's countries right. and, you know, and, explaining and, you know, what it's, they it's, themselves. It's never really been been the case in these negotiations that, that the UN was was dictating to any countries what they should be doing. But in the past, for instance, in the Kyoto Protocol, uh, you know, there was only one target type, uh, and it was your numbers were subject to negotiation. Uh, whereas here, you're setting your own numbers and you're choosing your target type, and you're absolutely right uh, that that allows for these contributions to be much more closely embedded in the political and policy context at, at home, and therefore uh, more likely to be achieved. Uh, so you're saying the INDCs are one big issue on the table. The other, uh, before I interrupted you? Yeah, so, so the other major task before the parties in Lima uh, is pulling together kind of a, a 
early pre-draft of a Paris Agreement. Uh, this is referred to as the Elements Text. Uh, it will it will not uh, be a formal draft of the agreement. That won't come until some time of next year. Uh, but it will be a substantive compilation of the issues that parties would like to see addressed in the Paris Agreement. Hopefully, we'll sketch out areas where there already is a strong degree of convergence among parties, but very likely we'll also include a range of options in other areas uh, where differences remain. So, uh, you know, this is sort of a very, very rough first cut of a Paris Agreement. Uh, and so what are those areas of divergence uh, right now? Well, I mean, I think we, we're seeing... Uh, a fair degree of convergence around uh, what I would call the mitigation structure uh, of the agreement. Will you explain what that means for people who aren't yeah. down so with I, the lingo? So, so, so as we've been discussing, one major piece of that would be these, these uh, INDCs, uh, but some of the other elements, for instance, would be uh, a system for reporting on implementation. Uh, you know, for countries to uh, report periodically to the UN on how they are doing and actually fulfilling those commitments. Uh, there will also need to be some, some agreement on a, a system of accountability so we, we are able to assess how well countries are on track. Uh, so some of those elements I think we're beginning to see some strong agreement on. Other areas uh, are how the agreement should address adaptation. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, the helping countries cope with climate impacts. Uh, there's a pretty strong consensus that this agreement needs to give stronger weight to adaptation. Historically, within this process, the focus has primarily been on mitigation, reducing emissions. Uh, but because we haven't done as well there as we need to, countries are facing some significant impacts already and uh, the prospect of much more severe impacts in the future. So particularly the poor and vulnerable countries uh, need assistance with that. So just how that is uh, embedded into the agreement is, is one of the open issues. Uh, and there's always the issue of finance as well. Uh, what kind of support will be available to uh, poor developing countries, not just to adapt, but also to help them adopt clean energy practices and take other steps to reduce their emissions. So, so th those are some of the, the trickier issues. Um, there is also the question of the legal form of the agreement, which parts of it would be binding at the international level. And another perennial issue is what we refer to as differentiation, how, the, uh, how you will uh, distribute responsibility across and among developed and developing countries. Um, I think it's pretty clear that we will not see the kind of stark differentiation that you, for instance, saw in the Kyoto Protocol, where developed countries had binding targets, but developing countries had no new commitments at all. Uh, the U.S. and other developed countries have made very clear that they can't accept that kind of approach. The question is, what is the alternative approach that will be acceptable to all parties? Well, that's that's fascinating. Not to get like to too deep in the weeds of UN uh, negotiations, but this this sort of principle of I think it's called common but differentiated responsibilities, responsibilities. That's uh, right. is is sort of underpins a lot of these kinds of negotiations where you have. 
um, the developed world have their own set of responsibilities and the developing world have their own set of responsibilities all towards presumably the same goal. But uh, I guess the issue here is that you have these rapidly developing economies like India, China, uh, or even uh, other countries like Nigeria or, or South Africa, these countries that are developing rapidly, um, that if they develop in the same way that the West developed would just sort of be a disaster for the global climate. Um, so how are they navigating this this approach? Because that com- that idea of common but differentiated responsibilities has just been such a linchpin in previous UN negotiations. That's right. And that that is one of the, the core principles of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which, uh, you know, is the, the foundational uh, agreement in this process. Uh, and all parties are agreed that that principle remains central. Uh, and really, the question is how you apply it in practice in the new Paris Agreement. Uh, you know, the view being advanced by developed countries is that uh, in having established this notion of nationally determined contributions, you will very naturally get a de facto differentiation as countries come forward with their respective contributions, uh, what's sometimes called self-differentiation. Uh, and that's certainly the case. That would not be differentiation according to uh, any clearly delineated principles or criteria. You wouldn't be establishing any set categories developed or developing or what have you. Uh, It would just be a a natural de facto self-differentiation. I think it remains to be seen whether that would in fact produce a distribution of effort that is broadly accepted as equitable. Um, and it may be important to come up with some middle ground option, something between full self-differentiation on the one hand and the uh, you know the stark uh, developed developing country differentiation we had in the past, something between those that can accommodate all of these interests and provide confidence to all parties that there is uh, a practical application of this core principle of common but differentiated responsibilities that is accepted as fair, but still uh, preserves the ability and sovereignty of countries to fashion their own contributions. Uh, So just to to wrap up, I guess, what are your metrics for success uh, uh, for the the Lima conference? How would you know uh, if the delegates in Lima have produced something that moves the needle in a substantial way towards a final agreement in Paris? Well, you know, we, we, we face a certain paradox because on the one hand, I think we actually, uh, there is uh, significant momentum heading into Lima uh, with the announcement by the U.S. and China with a recent round of pledges to the new Green Climate Fund uh, with the, the, uh, the Ban Ki-moon Summit in New York. All of these have created a, a growing sense of momentum. On the other hand, uh, I think given the the fundamental dynamics of this negotiating process, uh, we may not see very much substantive progress in Lima. Uh, We do need a decision on those near-term steps over the the course of the next year on how countries will come forward with their contributions. Uh, And we do need a, a, a reasonably clean text that can serve as the basis for the negotiations toward the agreement next year. But I don't expect that text to uh, uh, to necessarily 
significantly narrow the differences. I think there will still be a wide range of substantive substantive differences reflected in that text. Perhaps the, the, the most important measure uh, of success in Lima is if parties leave with confidence in the process itself. Uh, this is always very tricky. It's a, it's a real challenge uh, when you have 190 or more countries trying to uh, work their way toward a common goal, just how you manage that process and making sure that everybody feels that the process is fair, that it's open, that it's inclusive, that everybody has their fair say. Um, and the co-chairs of the negotiations, I think, have been doing uh, a very capable job uh, leading up to Lima. I think Which they, countries they, are those? Uh, well, we have um, uh, Artur Runga Metzger uh, from the European Union uh, and Kishan Kumar Singh from Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, and they will remain the chairs of these negotiations through Lima, and then we'll have a new set of co-chairs for the final year. So they have their job cut out for them, uh, keeping everybody on board and moving in the same direction. Uh, you know, we will listen closely to the, the final statements of countries on the last day in Lima, and you'll get a sense there uh, of the mood and the level of confidence in the process going forward. Uh, Elliot, as always, this was so, so helpful. Thank you. You're very welcome. There you have it. That's what we need to know about the climate change talks in Peru. Uh, if you haven't already done so, check out the new Global Dispatches podcast landing page at globaldispatchespodcast.com. And if you're new to the podcast, this is a good distillation of what I do every Thursday, which is post a shorter conversation about 15, 20 minutes long with an expert or journalist or think tank type about something topical and in the news. And every Monday, I post longer interviews with foreign policy thought leaders or luminaries about their lives and careers. I discuss the ideas, influence, and events that shape their worldview from an early age. And we usually have really interesting conversations uh, about their life story. Uh, and these are folks that if you're an IR or foreign policy nerd you've probably heard of. Uh, and if you haven't heard of them, they tell some fascinating stories nonetheless. So subscribe on globaldispatchespodcast.com and we'll see you next time. Bye.